My name is Brandon. I can't tell you my last name. That would be too dangerous. We're recording this episode of My Dog Ate My Book Report so that more people will know the truth. The truth about what happens when two weirdo 30-somethings force each other to read formative books from their childhoods and then talk about them. Today is Animorphs number one, The Invasion, by K.A. Applegate. I'm Ren, and I think this is all nonsense, and I don't want to be a part of this, and I don't know. I don't... Why did I go to Marco? Marco's the worst. Yeah, you've decided to be the Marco. No. Yeah, so this is a me pick. <laughs> I know that shocks everyone. Um, I have questions so about how guess... you... Are not damaged. What makes you think of Fair. not damaged? I have like a lot of mental illness diagnoses. Um, yeah, so Animorphs was one of my things as a kid. I was very deeply into it for a couple of years there um, because it's the best. But uh, yeah, I guess I'll synopsize some stuff, but um, there's some content warnings. Not because this is an, not because this is a book for adults that I read as a child, but because this is a book for children that has a lot of content warnings in it. Um, and feel free to jump in if I've missed something. But uh, contained within this book, I feel I need to mention blood, gore, body horror, uh, death of various kinds, the 90s, um, slavery by aliens slash mind control by aliens, which is unpleasant, and, and Marco is in it. I, I think I would also say that it does have the, you know, very 90s level of ableism in terms of um, saying that things are lame or things are crazy, you know, that sort of thing. Because, you know, they didn't know better, I suppose, at that point. I suppose there's also mention of sort of like dysfunctional home life. Oh, yes. Yeah, there's... Um, this book does not get into it, but there's definitely, over the course of the series... Um, so Animorphs is a series from Scholastic of, of young reader sort of novels. Um, they are pretty quick reads. Um, they, they were even when I was reading them for me and I was not a very fast reader, uh, cause they clock in around 150 or 200 pages with relatively large text. Um, and they just, they just go, they just, they're fast. They just start going and they don't stop until the end. Um, that it, Animorphs is the story of five teenagers, Jake, Rachel, Tobias, Cassie, and Marco, um, who, while taking a shortcut home from the mall one night, 
uh, find a dying alien and are basically drafted into a war against an invading alien force of uh, a species called the Yurks, who are slugs that crawl into your ear and take over your brain. So the fact that they're invading is not obvious to anyone because they just seem like normal people. Um, the the weapon they are given to to do this to try to uh, hold back the invasion long enough for other interstellar aliens to come help uh, is the ability to morph into animals. They are able to turn into any animal that they uh, are able to touch for a, a little while to like record their DNA, um, and they proceed to make use of that to a variety of purposes to undermine and fight the Yurk invasion that they quickly find is a much more dangerous and massive threat than they first expected. And much more much more personal. Uh, so this book, this first book, The Invasion, is um, told from the point of view of Jake, uh, and details how they acquire their powers sloppily <laughs> from a dying alien called an Andalite, uh, Prince Elfangor in, in particular, um, and narrowly escape capture by a group of controllers, which is what you call people who are t- taken over by Yerks. Um, after, after, getting away and then taking a little time to experiment with their powers. Uh, Some of the group are much more gung-ho about like trying this morphing thing as soon as possible. And some of the group, mainly Marco, are just like, let's just not, let's just all pretend nothing happened and go about our lives. We didn't see a dying alien get eaten by a different alien. Um, let's just not worry about it. Um, but uh, Tobias and Cassie in particular are both like really like, oh man, animals, turning into animals is great. Um, but over time, they, as they realize that the Yurks are really um, looking for them, including, sadly, Jake's older brother, Tom, who Jake really, really, really didn't want to admit was acting strange, but was clearly acting strange. The moment they mentioned Tom and that Tom had joined a new club called The Sharing, I wrote a note, The Sharing, this is absolutely the origin of the Yurk infiltration. I wrote that the first time The Sharing was mentioned. It's not like it's hard to figure out, but I, it was, yeah, it was obvious. And so um, they spy on them via Jake morphing into his dog who he had acquired earlier uh, and, and listening in and indeed discover that not only is Tom definitely a controller, so is their assistant principal, um, assistant principal Chapman. Uh, they learn that the, the Yerks have a, have a base called the Yerk pool beneath the school. Yerks have to go there every now and again to like soak up rays from their native sun from a, from a device. And then they they go get some like combat morphs from the zoo so that they can attack the yerk pool but uh yeah 
they they realize at the end that this this is all this war is only beginning because you know the the your presence is going to be harder to defeat than they expected um so it's kind of a downer ending but also kind of a like oh man how are they going to stop the Yurks? I mean, that wasn't the most downer part of the ending. Yeah, there's all kinds of good things that happen. But um, really kind of the crux of the series as a whole, I think, is the uh, five Animorphs, um, which is what Marco suggested they call themselves. Uh, so as I said, this book was narrated by Jake, but one of the things that... Um, is kind of neat about the series as a whole is that it rotates who the narrator is. So there are books narrated by each character at regular intervals. Um, but Jake is the, is the first one. Jake's kind of the nominal leader of the group. Besides Jake, we have Rachel. The way she's described initially, it kind of sounds like she's going to be the sort of resident girl who likes girl things character, but she's really not um she's she's got a very aggressive streak and a competitive streak she's vaguely sporty she's more like the jock in this whole situation uh she's jake's cousin we have tobias i'm going in the order of like what order they narrate books in um uh Tobias is kind of the the school misfit. He's quiet and everybody thinks he's weird. And Jake is the only person who gives him any time of day. Which makes him the best character. Yep. He was always my favorite. Still is. Um, he's got some ambiguously very bad home life. Uh, the books do go into it, but the first book does not really explain. Um, it just says his home life is really bad. Uh Tobias is like the most gung-ho about morphing. He pretty much immediately goes and uh, Cassie helps him acquire a red-tailed hawk morph. And then he just spends as much time as possible as a red-tailed hawk in the book because he really likes flying and he feels very free. And um, I mean, it definitely makes sense. It's kind of like he didn't have a whole lot going for him and now he has a purpose. He doesn't describe it as feeling more himself as a bird, but that's kind of how I read it. One of the big takeaways for me going back and reading this now, I have reread this book before um, about 10 or 12 years ago. Um, but that was also when I wasn't particularly consciously questioning things like my gender identity, etc. But now I look at Tobias and I'm like, I don't know that he's on purpose meant to be kind of a, a queer allegory character, but like, I do think you can read him that way. Um, if just, you know, the metaphor is that being gay is like wanting to live as a bird uh, <laughs> as much as possible. Crap. No wonder I like him so much. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, then there's Cassie. Uh, Cassie is Rachel's best friend, I think. Uh, and Jake maybe has a crush on her. And she's the one whose mom works at the gardens, the resident amusement park slash zoo. Cassie is the horse girl. Cassie is the horse girl. Um, she lives on a farm. They, they have a wildlife rehab. 
So like, for instance, the hawk that Tobias acquires uh, is, is has a broken wing and is at the wildlife rehab. But yeah, she she's also like the best at morphing. Um, when everybody else morphs, their body just changes seemingly at random as far as like what parts change when and how fast and so forth. Cassie can kind of control the progression of her morph. She's also the most empathetic uh, empathetic she she is like very much the heart of the team um she's the most emotionally intelligent she's the most knowledgeable about animals basically here's the thing i never really liked cassie much as a kid and i think that was just mostly because i found her a little too goody two shoes but now cassie is is top of the list like, I think I connect with Tobias's angst a little more, so I think he's still at the top. But Cassie is number two. Um, I really like Cassie now. Uh, finally, there is Marco, Jake's best friend, the resident wisecracker, because you have to have one of those. Um, um, but he is, like, he is very much the adult tries to write what they think the funny teenager in the friend group sounds like and for k.a applegate that means star trek references which i'm okay with but even as a kid i was like this isn't real <laughs> i don't know anybody my age that likes star trek besides me because <laughs> marco even like um actually jake on a star trek point at one point it's kind of silly <laughs> um Marco uh, is the one who just like, I don't want to turn into an animal. I want to go home. I want to just forget that we saw any of the things we saw and just not, you know, do this. And, and that's partially because uh, his mom is dead. The book doesn't go into how or why or when. But clearly Marco's dad is still like barely functional after that tragedy. Um, yeah his his priorities are very understandable and he's very very concerned with the mental health of his father and he he like it made it very clear that he was worried that if he did this whole anamorph superhero thing he was really afraid that he was gonna die and that it was just gonna destroy his father so i understand it he's a dick about it but i definitely understand it and i think it gives him some good some good depth yeah because it would have been really easy to just have him be kind of the coward or whatever uh basically everybody but tobias at some point is kind of like i don't know like like dying sounds bad this is really dangerous but um when the other characters have all kind of become convinced they should intervene even at the risk of their own lives marco is is sort of the holdout because he's concerned about his dad's well-being um and and that's that's the uh that's the five that's the five animorphs uh they are new to this saving the world thing, but you got to figure it out as they go. Um, one of the things that I still really like about this series, um, I this book does a really good job of giving you the rules of its world. And I feel like that is important for a thing like this. Because otherwise, I think your world, A, it becomes trickier to sort of like communicate stakes um and, and b if you don't have a certain sort of set of established rules and limitations 
that are pretty clear and relevant. Um, I think that's kind of when settings just feel very samey and generic. Um, but but this this world, there's a lot of rules that we get hit with immediately, and that are are important to to the plot and, and continue to be like important foundations of the way that things happen over the course of the series. Um, so the morphing power has a few rules uh, to be able to morph. They have to acquire um, an animal, which requires them to be able to touch it for a few seconds and kind of focus on it. Um, but once they've done that, they can morph that animal any time thereafter. There's not like a number of charges or anything. Um, uh, but as you said, it's it's DNA based. So it's like that specific animal. Yeah. So like... Jake turns into his dog, but he couldn't be seen by Tom because he knew that Tom would recognize that as the family dog. Yeah. It's not just like a generic dog. Yeah. If you stay in a morph for longer than two hours, you're stuck. You can't demorph. Um, so that's bad. So right up front, we know we know how the characters can can get like new forms and you know, figuring out what forms they have available and how to get forms they need to do a thing um, is immediately kind of like a relevant piece of stuff and continues to be. Um, and two, uh, they always have a time limit. Um, the Yerks also have, uh, in particular, one very key thing that they need. Uh, they have to, uh, every three days, return to a yerk pool which is basically a a, a big a pool of of sludge that is set up with a device that mimics a special form of radiation from their home sun uh, called candrona rays that they use as essentially sustenance um so every three days each controller has to go to their local yerk pool and uh, uh hang out in the pool for a bit while they lock up the host um, so, so that then also creates the situation where like, we know that this is a situation that is true of anybody that's a controller. Oh, we know that it, we follow Tom at such and such a time, um, will probably be led to the York pool. Um, yeah, but one of the most, I think, sinister little details about needing to go back to the York pool and locking up the humans is that there are some humans who did it willingly. Who just let go and watch TV while the Yerk regenerates. And that's messed up. But also, I super believe it. Their empire um, immediately sounds pretty pretty scary and sinister. Which I think is, is solid also from a world building perspective. Uh, obviously, a lot of the characters we deal with are human controllers. Because we're on Earth. And it's, you know, the 90s. And not... You know, this isn't a world where, like, Earth knows there are aliens and spaceships come and go. It's like, you know, it's, it's just the 90s. Um, nobody knows uh, that there's alien mind control slugs trying to conquer the world. Apparently, humans are relatively plentiful on Earth relative to presumably other species elsewhere. Because they're, they're just like, we want to take over this planet because there's a ton of humans. And we can have, like, a ton of bodies for Yerks. Because um, the Yerks, if they're outside of a body, they're just a slug. They'd have no 
special capability or defense mechanism or anything. So they're extremely vulnerable. Even just a human body is a big upgrade for, for them. Um, so yeah, while a lot of the humans that are controllers are uh, unwillingly enslaved, um, there are some that apparently agreed to help. Uh, the Yerks have also brought some controllers of other species. Uh, the two big ones here are the Hork-Bajir, which are these big reptilian uh, creatures who are like seven feet tall and have claws and blades all over their bodies. They're just like, they're, they're the bruisers of, of the Yerks. If you want something dead, you send a Hork-Bajir controller. Um, obviously, they keep them out of sight of things, and they're kind of the big reason that when the Animorphs need to do, like, a combat mission, they need to find really good morphs to do that in. Um, uh, and then there's the Taxons, which are, like, giant centipede creatures, and they apparently are also will willingly uh, in, in cahoots with the Yerks. Um, they're not necessarily great in fights, but they're gross. Uh, so those are like the three kinds of controllers we really deal with very much. But then there's the boss. Um, the leader of the invasion is Visser III, uh, which is a rank. And he is the only Yurk who has an Andalite body. Um, the, the Andalites are the Yurk's main enemy and the ones who invented the morphing technology. Uh, they're like blue space centaurs with, with eye stalks and scorpion tails. And only one of them has ever been enslaved by a Yurk, and it's Visser III. Um, so he's the leader of this invasion. He has acquired really dangerous alien creatures from all over the place. Um, so he's, he's the final boss, uh, oftentimes. And he's also just like, you know... He, he's been fighting Andalites for a long time, so he's very prepared to fight anything that these random teenagers can throw at him. Um, and and he's, like, the main reason that they only managed to save one person from the Yerk pool in this book, because he turns into an eight-headed fire-spitting creature and, and just starts setting people on fire um, as they try to escape. And he also turns into so so the very huh. I was told that these books were violent, but I I just kind of assumed it was violent for kids. But the first time you meet Visser Three, he turns into some monster and just chews down the injured andalite yeah in a scene that was pretty graphic it describes you know he chunks of the andalite fall out of his mouth and the taxons eat the scraps of of dead andalite and i'm just like this is a lot for children yeah and like it doesn't stop there especially during the the attack on the york pool at the end there's an, uh so rachel gets a an elephant as her combat morph and there's a relatively detailed description of her just, like, trampling a taxon into just goo. 
basically. Um, it's graphic. I-, I had mentioned to Brandon right after I had read that scene, like, wow, this got this got a lot more you know, graphic than I thought it was going to. And then Brandon's like, just wait, there's some body hard hard with the morphing. And the first morphing scene happens and they're like, oh, it doesn't hurt. It's fine. And I was like, okay, cool. And then Jake turns into a lizard. And eats a spider. And I was pretty grossed out about that. I'm not the biggest fan of spiders. And I definitely don't like the idea of eating one. But that wasn't the most upsetting part of that scene. The thing that like made me actually set the book down for a little while was when the lizard's tail got stepped on and ripped off. And then I was like, oh my god, is he going to unmorph and be missing an arm or something? He wasn't, luckily, but I... Eating the spider is definitely like... Probably the most shiver-inducing part of the book for me. You know, one of the, one of the key parts of, of morphing is that uh, when you morph, you gain a lot of the instincts and stuff of the animal. Uh, and so especially when it's a new morph, um, they sometimes have to kind of gain control of the animal instincts. Jake morphed the, the lizard um, to spy on Principal Chapman. His lizard brain was just like, oh, there's food over there. Oh, man, going to eat it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jake was not happy that that happened, uh, and, and was like trying to get over it later with junk food, which I, I'm like, okay, yeah. Um, this book didn't get into it specifically, but one of the advantages of morphing is that when you morph, um, injuries don't persist. Uh, so that's why he didn't like have a piece of him missing because of the tail. Um, and, and and although there wasn't really an instance that they really lingered on in this one, um, it, it also means that if the Animorphs are injured in a fight, uh, as long as they're able to get clear and, and morph back to human, they'll be fine. Um, which means that sometimes some of them, not in this book, but over the course of the series, some of them suffer some, like, really grievous injuries in fights. So the very important rule about staying in a morph for only two hours is something they drilled in so many times that I was like, oh, yeah, somewhere in this book series, someone's going to get stuck as something. I was not expecting it to happen in book one. But it does. Tobias is a hawk. Presumably forever. Tobias is stuck as a hawk now. I mean, it's a pretty um, good hawk to be. He's a red-tailed hawk. Yeah. Um, since Visser 3 did show up and they ended up having to escape the Yurk pool as quickly as they could with whoever they could take with them, Tobias uh, got stuck in the pool for a while, in the pool cavern, not in the pool itself, uh, for a while before he was able to leave without somebody noticing him. Um, and... So he is just unable to uh, unable to go back. Fortunately, um, when they're morphed, they do have access to thought speak. Uh, they can communicate telepathically, but um, but yeah, it's a bummer. And and Tom is still a controller. They they tried to save Tom uh, while his yerk was in the pool, but failed. 
Um, they also mentioned that like the cop that they were pretty sure was a controller. It just says that Cassie says he won't be a problem anymore. Oh, right. Yeah. By the end of this book, um, this first book, we we know for a fact that Jake and Rachel have 100 million percent killed people. And Cassie and Marco and Tobias probably have, but we just don't get confirmation. Yeah, it's. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know how, like, in a lot of kids media, they won't actually say the word killed. They'll just be like. I will annihilate you. I will destroy you. They they just say it. <laughs> They're also very blunt um, sometimes about the stakes as well. Like Margot asks Jake before the final battle, like, hey, if if it looks like they're going to take me, kill me. Right? Which is like, yeah, I get it. But also, children. So I want to... I want to know since this was your pick you know like when you read it how old were you my my best friend for a few years as a kid he was a big reader um so i was already a big reader by the time i met them and it just felt logical that we would share and um anyway he turned me on to animorphs um he loaned me the books that he had already but it was only the first three or four books um and so by book four or five, I was just buying them as they came out myself. Um, they were actually like the first thing I can remember ever, budging is a strong word, but the first time that I, I, I recall ever having like a recurring expense that I had to sort of plan for a bit. Um, my parents gave me a, a modest allowance at that age. Uh, I don't remember exactly how much it was. But Anaworth's books were, were five bucks at the time. Um, and one came out uh, about every month. Uh, I, I looked back at publication dates and it kind of varied a little bit. Sometimes there would be two in a month, but not in the following month or whatever. But they were almost monthly. Um, and, and just I I would always make sure that I had money for the Animorphs book. I would incessantly call bookstores in town to ask when they got it in. So I kept calling places to be like, hey, do you have Animorphs number seven or, or whatever the case may be? And as soon as they did, I, I would harass my mom until she took me to buy it. Uh, and then usually I would come home and read it in one, maybe two sittings. Um, I was deep. I was deep into Animorphs. Um, and honestly, like all of the all of the darkness didn't register for me. It made me feel like I was reading something more grown up, but it didn't bother me. Um, uh, so the, the course of me and like my major ongoing fandoms, Star Trek's a special case, so I'm gonna put it over there on the, to the side. It's not it's not relevant here. But as a kid, the first thing that I really became, like, really into uh, and, and, like, watched as much as I could and so forth was Transformers, you know, which is, of course, the, the classic 80s television show where good alien robots and bad alien robots come to Earth uh, because they've been fighting a war and their war expands to Earth and they 
stay hidden by turning into something else. Um, my next thing was Power Rangers, which is, you know, aliens come to Earth and five teenagers are given powers by another alien that they can turn into forms that let them fight the bad aliens. And then when I grew out of Power Rangers, I started reading this book series about bad aliens that come to Earth and five teenagers who are given powers to turn into something else uh, by a dying alien to, to fight the evil aliens, uh, except it's like gritty. I don't think I consciously made that connection when I was younger, but I definitely made it now. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. I had a type. Um, but also, I think that the, the, the stakes setting, and especially the fact that like bad things happen immediately in the series, is what really, really drove me to want to continue you know, with, with all of the other stuff as fast as I could, right? Um, it was not a series where most of the books were just kind of like these, these one-off status quo sort of episodes. Some of them would be, some of them are more inconsequential than others in the long run, but it did have a, a sense of continuity that was um, rare in my experience at the time. I, for a while I was like able to rattle off all the morphs each character had, had acquired and would debate with my friends sometimes about like the how, how a given character would be able to handle a certain problem based upon, you know, what morphs they have and stuff like that. It took me a couple of chapters to get into it because I was really thrown off by the 90s lingo. I don't know if it's a matter of, I don't know, embarrassment that I definitely talked like that. Or just, uh, I just don't want to read text with that many likes in it. But it, it took me a little bit to just stop cringing at the the 90s speak. Speaking of the writing, something that I found pleasantly nostalgic is the way that various creatures are described. Creatures and ships. Um, because there are often descriptions that are repeated over and over again throughout the series. Um like the comparison of Hork Bajir to salad shooters <laughs> and, and things like that. And just like that stuff kind of really took me back. So for, for our listeners, if there are any of you out there, we have a rule where we don't talk about the book with each other, even though we talk every day until we get to this podcast. But we had a couple slip ups this week where we started talking about it and then just couldn't stop. I was like, no, wait, we, we should stop talking about this. We've got to save it for the podcast. And then we would keep talking. It was bad. But I think we were both really excited. <laughs> so I think that speaks to the book a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, even then, I didn't ultimately finish the entire series because it ran. It ran a number of years. It ended up being 54 main books long um, and at, you know, roughly one a month, give or take. Uh, I think I aged out of it around the middle. That was one of the questions I was going to ask you is if you've ever read all of them. 
I haven't. Um, the time that I reread the first few about 10 or 12 years ago, uh, I kind of intended to. And I don't remember why I stopped exactly, but that was also like a very dark period in my life. Um, and there were just a lot of things I stopped doing for reasons unrelated to the things. So um, I've never read the entire series. Uh, I am 99% sure the last book that I read was number 29. Now, by that point, um, many of the other books that were not numbered but fit into the continuity had also come out. So, I, I, you know, it was more than 29 books, ultimately. But, but I, do, I do really want to finish the series sometime because I, I think that it's one of those things that there's a lot of really good craftsmanship in it. Um, and as a person who does written stuff in genre fiction at this point, I mean, for games mostly, but I, I think that there's maybe things I could learn from, um, when it comes to, you know, successful ongoing IPs, right? It's, it's a different beast than like a, a one-off novel, like, do I think that any given Anorth book is as good as uh, from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basley Frankweiler? No, but they're different beasts, right? I'm interested by what you mean by you aged out of it. What do you think um, made you think you were too old for it? Part of it was that most of my other friends who had been reading them fell off before I did. I've historically been the guy who tends to be the last one to give up on a, on a thing that I was enjoying with my friends. Like, like I've always kind of stuck with a thing a year or two after my peers um, enough that there would be times that I would be like embarrassed to admit. Right. Um, so I think some of it was shame. Some of it was, I think being a little tired of the standard, like, like teen drama elements. I think also, um, I think it was a patch where I felt like the books were less often being as exciting or momentous as they used to be. Um, and I discovered that book 25 was the first book to be ghostwritten. But from that point on, most of the numbered books were ghostwritten. Um, so it, I didn't know that at the time. Um, they didn't hide it. Uh, apparently, the ghostwriter is thanked in the book itself. Um, because Kay Applegate actually got her start as a ghostwriter on uh, Sweet Valley Twins, which is a spinoff of Sweet Valley High. Um, she, she did all the outlines and stuff for the books. Um, she apparently had intended to write the entire series, but it was around that point where one of her other series that she was doing was was taking more of her time than she expected uh and also she had just had a child and um ultimately the decision was made that that a pretty substantial chunk of the latter half of animorphs would be ghostwritten based upon outlines by applegate and with her like editorial um 
role. She did still write all of the um, non-numbered books during that time, as well as the last several books. So, the, so like the very, very end is her. Honestly, the main reason I want to re read the whole thing is because of K.A. Applegate's famous or infamous, depending on who you are. I'm going to go with famous because I think it's cool. Open letter to the fans following the ending of the series. Which you should not go look up if you do not want spoilers for the end. She explicitly talks about several things in the ending. But when the series ended, some fans were unhappy with the nature of the ending. Uh, and and her open letter, I'll read a part that's not spoilery. Um, yeah. Animorphs was always a war story. Wars don't end happily, not ever. Often relationships that were central during war dissolve during peace. Some people who were brave and fearless in war are unable to handle peace, feel disconnected and confused. Other times people in war make the move to peace very easily. Always people die in wars, and always people are left shattered by the loss of loved ones. There's a lot more to the letter, uh, but as I said, she does specifically talk about some of the controversial elements, so don't go looking for it unless you're okay with, like, finding out some of the major um, elements of the ending. But... Um, she was very vocal at that point that she'd never intended to have the story be one that that is like everything is nice at the end after a final confrontation where all of the enemies are defeated and peace reigns forever. Sadly, if, if readers were expecting that, that was never the series that she was writing. And it's easy to see that, I think, in, in even the first book. Like, bad stuff happens immediately. The characters absolutely have PTSD, and Applegate knows it and doesn't hide that fact. And that's just an yeah, example. Like, I, I feel like this was not pulling any punches or, and definitely wasn't giving me any sort of impression that everything was just going to be super easy so i spent a, a little bit of of my time reading this book wondering why i didn't read it when i was a kid but i know exactly why i didn't read it when i was a kid because the covers are ugly Covers are ugly, and I feel like they gave me the impression that it was just, like, some silly story about kids who could turn into animals and the hijinks that ensue. No, Nobody ever recommended it to me or told me that it was anything deeper than that, and I just wasn't interested in that. I was off reading, you know, Stephen King and books about the apocalypse, but I would have absolutely been into this had I known 
that it wasn't just silly animal hijinks. I don't think I would have picked it up myself either. Like, I think I only got into it because I had a friend who was like, no, here's what it's, here's what it actually is. Here are the books. Go read it. You'll like it. And he was correct. Um, I don't think I would have just like chosen it off of a, off of a shelf at a bookstore or a book fair or whatever. Um, but I'm super glad that somebody made me read it. The redos of the covers are also bad. I don't know why the Animorphs can't have good covers. I, I think the redos of the covers are, like, atrocious. Um, like, they are hideous. Um, I, I don't love the original style either, though I do have a certain amount of, like, nostalgia for it. So I'm kind of predisposed to be like, well, that's how they were. Like, do I remember sometimes feeling like if people saw me, if like adults saw me reading it, they would look at the cover and think that I was a weirdo? Yes, I thought that a lot as a child. Uh, but uh, yeah, but like the, the new, uh, no, I don't, I don't, I don't care for the K.A. or Catherine Alice Applegate uh, is a person who has written a lot of books. Um she started as a ghostwriter, as I said, uh, and, and would go on to do a lot of other YA series. Um, Animorphs was not her first, though it is the one that is, I think, best known of all of her uh, stuff. Prior to Animorphs, she had done some some of her other series, uh, which were generally under the name Catherine Applegate, were like uh, teen drama kind of things. Making Out is one, which is apparently set in Maine. And it's just kind of like teen drama stuff, etc. She wanted to do Animorphs because she had this like personal interest in in animals and how animals see the world and wanted to kind of write a story that put kids in like the heads of, of animals and the ways that animals relate to the world and especially like the the, the differences in the ways that they like perceive everything right and the book even this book does like do a lot of talking about like uh hawk eyesight and dog sense of smell and you know yeah the the, the lizard's absolute panic and then voracious hunger for spiders um uh Animorphs is as K.A. Applegate because, of course, Scholastic was like, we don't think boys will read a book written by a woman. So we're going to go with K.A. Um, uh, it's also sort of a pseudonym for both K.A. Applegate herself and her husband, Michael Grant. Uh, so the series was written by the two of them together. Um and I believe other times that you see K.A. Applegate on books, that's still maybe the assumption. Um, they also wrote various other kinds of things under various other pseudonyms at the same time and since, including uh, uh, Catherine Kindle, which is both of them uh, writing Harlequin romance novels. Um and uh, the other one I bothered to write down was was Pat Polari, which is the author of a 
kids sort of comedy book called Barfo Rama. Ew. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, and there were other series like Everworld uh, started during Animorphs. And that was a series that, that is also attributed to K.A. Applegate, but is also um, somewhat ghost written, etc. cetera. Um, both, both Applegate and Grant have, have continued to write both together and separately. Um, mostly YA, but not exclusively, uh, over the course of the, of the years since Animorphs. Um, like I said, Animorphs from book 25 onward were often, uh, written by ghost, ghost writers with a handful of exceptions. It, it's possible to find them. They're all publicly known, it seems. Um, I, I made mention of the series being some books besides just the 54 numbered books. So um, in addition to those books, there were uh, several other books. Um, one of them was the Megamorphs subseries, which does fit into the mainline continuity wherever, basically what, wherever they were published um, between mainline books but were not themselves like in that numbering. They were numbered as Megamorphs one through four. Um, Megamorphs books were longer and would switch around who was the narrator chapter to chapter. Um, so they, they were sometimes kind of bigger stories and would pop between the various Animorphs. Um, those were all written by, by Applegate. Uh, then there were the um, Chronicles books, which were books like the Andalite Chronicles and the Hork-Bajir Chronicles, which followed um, other characters elsewhere in the, in the universe. Um, many of them had at least partially sort of prequel kind of content. Uh, just books that sort of gave us a look of like what 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 andalites are like and and how the war began and um what what did elfangor get up to before he died in a construction site on earth uh yeah so so nick who gave me the box sent me the recommended order which is you read megamorphs one after animorphs seven correct andalite chronicles after book 13 yeah Megamorphs two after eighteen, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, they they basically, while the Chronicles books are largely essentially stuff that happened beforehand, um, some of them do have like revelations and things that, uh, it's arguably best that you learn them when they were published relative to the rest of the series. Um, there were also a couple choose your own adventure books. Um, called I think Alternomorphs. Alternomorphs. Um, which, as I recall, were sort of like, what if you were friends with the Animorphs and were with them in the construction site or whatever? Um, I would have got eaten by a hork Yep, yep, it would have been bad. Uh, so, so that that's. It's it's a it's a lot of books. They are very fast reads, generally speaking, um, but it is still a lot of books. Um, the 
rest of the Animorphs Empire kind of didn't go super far. Uh, there was a Game Boy Color game that was reportedly kind of bad. I never played it. Um, from what I've seen, it looks like it's sort of like a very basic Pokemon knockoff. Which doesn't sound like a terrible idea for how to do an Animorphs game, but it wasn't very good, apparently. Um, I remember they had action figures that were essentially Transformers. I think they might have even had the Transformers branding on them. So, like, it was a decent attempt, I suppose, but, like, they also didn't look human when they weren't in their animal form, right? Nickelodeon aired an Animorphs TV series starting in September of 1998. It ran for 26 episodes over the course of two seasons. I watched the pilot when it came out and pretty quickly stopped bothering. Um, but uh, uh, the Animorphs TV series, they were half-hour episodes. They were live action. It's clear they made one Andalite puppet, and it's just the Andalite from like the shoulders up. It's just the head. It has a little bit of like animatronic movement to some degree but like not a lot uh they keep recycling the same shots of uh like hoof legs walking in slow motion but it's like just like the bottom six inches or so of the leg so it's like for all we knew it was just like a guy with like two sticks that had hoofs on the end uh so that they they reuse a ton of shots of their of their puppets and stuff because the puppets are not very useful and they just like they'll maybe slow-mo them or like light them slightly like put a color filter or something on them but the actual morph happened the morph and the eating of elfangor was just we saw the shadow of it on the wall of a construction building and this kind of thing continues throughout the throughout the show like when when they morph um it's just a very basic like computer effect of like morph jake to tiger and then you'll have like a shot of like they got an actual tiger to like walk across this sound stage while some extras acted scared um for about two seconds and then you know they'd cut away to somebody else and they they always seemed to like spend as little time in morphs as they could. well there is a two hour time limit you know I think in the TV show they have about a 90 second time limit. Top. Uh, I had a discussion question. Assuming you had access to your average American zoo, what would your combat morph be? That wasn't quite the question I thought you were going to ask. What did you think I was going to ask? I thought you were going to ask if I had to get stuck no, that, in that's, well, that's, an animal form, which one I would have picked. Very, I assume a wren. No. No. You're allowed to be wrong, I guess. Then. Wow. <laughs> it would be so useless to get stuck as a wren. Yeah, no, I would just get eaten. I know. It would just be. It would just be convenient. So my answer for if I got stuck as something would be an ermine. But. And that would not be a terrible combat morph, but I feel like I would need something a little beefier for combat morph. So I'm going to go up to a fisher oh, yeah. for a combat morph because they got some good claws. Mm, yeah. Good teeth. Very squirrely. Yeah. So you're going for like 
quick and hard to hit more than just like oh yeah muscle. i'm like in a like like a like an agility fighter yeah totally like, hide slice hide slice jump up a tree yeah yeah that makes sense but if i were to get stuck at something i i would want almost the same amount of combat capability but be a little bit cuter and be in our mind yeah what about you um so i i do i do find it difficult to argue with you know jake's tiger selection or whatever even though i don't really care about cats but um i don't know i was thinking like komodo dragon or something could be cool i know not every dude has one of those but assuming it did i have certainly seen some they're because they're strong and they're fast they have a septic bite they're not that fast they're fast i not ermine fast but that's true i they're fast ish i feel like all reptiles have a speed limitation and i know that when i'm playing a video game and i'm playing some sort of fighter type that's like slow and bulky i get so agitated i just want to be something fast so i feel like even a komodo dragon i would just be like i'm too slow yeah, I don't feel like I would want to be like an elephant or whatever. I don't think I would be in that class for sure. I did I was I was thinking about also like things that would be sort of agility fighters, but I don't think I would want to go all the way down to a fisher necessarily. Um You know, a a a, a canine could also be useful. <laughs> um Yeah, but canines can't get up trees. That's true. Um I mean, I, I I can't I can't fault any of the animorphs their choice. I mean, I find the usefulness of a hawk in a fight a little dubious, but he does obliterate that guy's eyes. Um, I mean, so you know, a hawk's legs, the, the, their claws are like basically spring loaded. The amount of force in a hawk's grip is, I mean, it can break the spine of a rabbit instantly. It's, 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 I wouldn't choose a red tail hawk because they're on the smaller side of, 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 you know, raptor type birds that one could be, but yeah. You know, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I actually think that I could see going for some kind of, for like a horse or something like Cassie does, right? Like. Because that adds a certain utility. I feel like I'm a, I'm a person who I wouldn't necessarily want to be the frontline fighter or the frontline tank, but I want to have some utility to the group. So like, hey, I'm a zebra. People can jump on my back. <laughs> and I can also hit things with my hooves. Because here's the other thing. I kind of feel like I would be weirded out by biting stuff. I guess I would get used to it if it was, you know, biting something and be in, in like my mouth getting a little icky or, you know, Earth becoming subjugated by an alien empire. But I, I, I do see some appeal to being like, no, my power is kicking. I kick things real hard <laughs> with with these hooves. And they just, they just get kicked real hard. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm... I'm excited that I finally got around to reading these books. I I think it was a really good pick. Thank you for showing me 
the wonder that is teen trauma. Yeah, so I, I waffled about how many giant peaches this gets. But I think it gets like four. I was going to say four. I think, I think it gets four. Like, I think... It's 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 hard to get past some of the 90s grammar. And... You know, I can't give something a five that has so many uses of the word lame. But it was really compelling. I mean, I'm, I'm very seriously considering, you know, beginning my reread slash first time read of the latter half of the series. Um, well, I'm continuing to keep going, yeah. so I have no judgment here. Yeah. So that's that's our rating. Animorphs number one. A thumbs up. So uh, what are we reading next? Well, I thought that since I made us read Stephen King and you allowed us the pleasure of reading this, we still might want a little bit of a palate cleanser. And this book that I'm going to have us read next is about animals, but it is just a cute, fluffy little thing that I read more times than I can even remember as a child. I desperately hope that you're about to say something like Watership Down. <laughs> Carry on. That'll happen. But we are going to read The Cricket in Times Square by George Selden. Alright. It's got crickets, it's got mice, it's got cats, they're all friends, everything's fine. No trauma. Do they fight aliens? I find out when you read the book. Okay. My Dog Ate My Book Report is hosted and produced by Ren and Brandon, that's us, and edited by the fabulous Derek Phelan. The music used in this podcast was licensed by Epidemic Sound. Transcripts were generated by otter.ai. Our icon image was illustrated by Cindy Lau. Have a question or a comment for the team? You can find us on our website, which links to all of our socials at dogatemybookreport.blueberry.net. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot net. Or by emailing at dogatemybookreport at gmail. Blueberry doesn't like vowels. But anyway, yeah, we would be super excited to know what books you loved growing up. Thanks for listening. <laughs>